you know, it's not Karachi, it is not East Pakistan, this is not India, this is not Ireland, this is never records, this is never records, this is never records. And certainly me. In the crash. In the booth with never records. Nice. With 13 minutes. Across the ocean, from New York to Liverpool to Derry, we are the ones who believe that through joy we can forever live. Thank you, Never Records. I'm sorry I touched your microphone. Am I You are not listening to Never Records on Blue Gold Radio 99.9 FM. Welcome to episode 46 of Never Records Radio. My name is Ted Riederer, and I'm an artist and musician who lives and works in New York City. From the Mississippi to the River Jordan, I've recorded musicians, poets, historians, murder balladeers, anyone who wants to cut a vinyl record for free in my conceptual art project, Never Records. The Never Records archive continues to grow. To this date, there are over 500 recordings from seven cities around the world. In May of 2011, curator Theo Sims brought Never Records to the Context Gallery in Derry, Northern Ireland. A secular project in a sectarian town, Never Records Dairy reaffirmed my belief that art and music have the power to galvanize a community. Let me describe this next recording to you. I'm going to begin today's episode with the last session I recorded in Dairy. No one has heard it since the day it was cut to a clear, floppy 7-inch. It's a wonderful interview with two older gentlemen who have spent their lives in Dairy. Lawrence Muir a local magazine editor, and Mickey McGinnis, a local historian. Pauline Ross, the director of the Playhouse Theater, the building that housed the Context Gallery, thought we'd be interested in meeting Mr. Muir and Mr. McGinnis because they both worked in one of the only factories in Derry to employ men in the 20th century, the Birmingham Sound Reproducers Turntable Factory, the BSR. After the collapse of the shipbuilding industry in the late 19th century, the shirt industry, which predominantly employed women, sustained dairy through the first half of the 20th century. There were simply no jobs for men. That is, until the BSR turntable factory opened. Okay, Lawrence Moore, editor of a local magazine, uh, former BSR worker. My name is Mickey McGinnis. I'm a former BSR worker and I coordinator of the Community History and Heritage Project, so I'm interested in local history, and I bring my local history to, to looking at my own past as well. You, know. you asked a question to start off with there when we came in. Uh, what did we think about the BSR and what was it like working on it? Well, could I sum it up in a line that a gentleman gave to me when I was interviewing him about the piece that Michael was talking about earlier on? And they said to me, it was the biggest social club in Ireland. That's what I thought about the BSR. And in many ways, he was absolutely right. Uh, what you had then, you'll never have again. It was a factory that was labor intensified. There was 
1,100 men working on it or thereabouts. And uh, the mix included everything comedians, sportsmen, writers, frustrated people, frustrated teachers. And all those people were together, thrown together. And it, it worked like nothing else that I ever worked at before. And I have made so many friends from that experience of working together there. And, uh, you know, they took a product that was practically nothing. And within a space of four years, they were producing 30,000 units a week. So that's, if I'm sounding very prejudiced about it, I make no apology for that. I loved the place when I was there. There were times, there were times I hated it, but 90% of the times I loved it. What Some, you, sorry. What did you guys do in the, in the uh, I worked in the motor department. We made the small electric motors that uh, powered the unit. Michael, I'll let Michael talk for himself on this one. I worked in the tool room. And the tool room was the place where the tools were made that fabricated the, the parts. And what was remarkable about the BSR operation was that, I mean, if you get a motor car engine, the, the dynamo is made by somebody and the batteries may be somebody else. And, but every part in the BSR, Sheet metal came under the BSR and left as a, as a, as a record player or a tape deck. And uh, it was remarkable in that sense. And the other thing that Lawrence was talking about, it was a proximity of a large group of men who, even though there was noisy in some places, they could be heard. And there was communication over a wide area. I mean, we have a banter culture that anybody listening from outside would think it was heavy insults. Yet it's, it's a very important part of the banter, you know. There's one thing about it, and uh, I was cursed with an affliction when I was a teenager that I blushed at the drop of a hat. So I was reared in the right place because if you hadn't got a skin as thick as a rhinoceros, you either got one or you submerged, and uh, it cured me of that. And the life skills, that was great because you learned to handle yourself. You either crawled under your shell or you learned to answer back. I got pretty good at it by swapping insults, you know, kind of lightly, but always with the sting in them. But I taught you those life skills. But the other thing is, were there, there was international footballers there, and I mean, there was sort of uh, other entertainment. Was I don't think I should mention. Maybe I should. Willie Bradley would be left off at the gate on the money bus that took his show band away to play somewhere else, and he would play, have a doze in the money bus, and then come under his work the next day. And the other funny thing about uh, Willie, you can tell the story now, but. At the time when uh, dance halls in Ireland closed during Lent, uh, well, uh, and then the, uh, it meant that a lot of bands could get work in England, so they travelled over for, for the extent of Lent. So well, he decided he needed time off. So he was uh, he kind of staggered past one of the, the these kind of offices that over full of glass that oversaw everything, and he kind of staggered and then came out and said, "You all right?" He says, "I'm not a bit well." So they sent him home to recuperate, and he just hopped in the minibus to take up the boat to go to England. But when he's in Belfast, he opens the telegraph, BSR closes. So his timing was immaculate in some ways, you know. But he was able to have a whole get a career and a part-time musician, and uh, he contributed to the crack as well. He was a funny man. And you see, it was a very fortuitous thing for BSR. 
everything fell into place for it exactly at the right time. You're talking about the 50s and the 60s. The pop culture of a teenage group who had disposable income probably for the first time ever. They were able to afford low-cost record changers and record players. And McDonald fed that market. It was an insatiable market many, many times, but it was also fairly volatile. There were times there were so many payoffs because, you know, when you're producing 25, 30,000 units a week, the only time that that's going to sustain itself is if they started to fight a war in Iraq and they use record changers as ammunition, then okay, you'll sustain yourself with that. But the time comes when it builds up, and that kept happening. And it was invariably at a holiday time or a Christmas time where you had redundancies. That's why when the blow came finally, people were absolutely devastated. They thought, this is another payoff. But the more astute people in the factory realized, no, there's something different about this one. There was a funereal kind of an atmosphere in the whole factory before it eventually closed its doors for the last time. And um, the story of that is an interesting thing in itself, probably a bit too long drawn out for me to give it to you here. But uh, it, it devastated a lot of people because for the first time, a lot of people worked for the first time when BSR came along. A lot of people worked after a lengthy absence again when BSR came along. And when the doors closed, that was it. They were back to square minus one because they then realised what it was like to be working and now it's gone. Talking about the music here, there was in the dance music and the pop music, the, the Americans appearing here in the Second World War was very important because local musicians like the McIntyre family who were, I mean, they led a lot of the kind of dance band music. I talked to Gail McIntyre, who's, I mean, a fabulous jazz musician. He's, he's, he spanned a couple of generations. And I asked him, How, when did you start playing jazz? And he said his father was out, Gabe was playing when he was a teenager, and he was very, very talented, and playing just normal sort of written pieces and that, that bands, uh, dance stuff. And his father comes in with a record, Artie Shaw record, and he plays it. And I says, how did you respond? He says, I cried, and I'm playing jazz ever since. No, no, I, I, no, I see the point. I see where you're coming from here. No. Uh, what it was in Derry at that particular time was... It didn't matter what you were working at. If you were given a job of sandpaper and elephant and a mouse, you would have tried it because it was work. And there was just no work here for the male population. It was the females who sustained dairy through the short factories. This came along, and if you had had your choice, you'd have preferred to be building ships that they did here before too as well. But the choice wasn't there. McDonald came along with this factory. It offered somebody a chance to work, a weekly wage, and they were delighted with it. Uh, what they were doing, I'm not saying it didn't matter, because there were many jobs that they were extremely boring. You know, the guy putting four, four nuts and screws and a component and putting it on down the line. Okay, but that's where the banter came in. That's where they, okay, we have to counteract this with something. And what they did do is they honed their skills to the... It was so sharp, it needed a government health warning. They were that funny. And that's how it came about, because of the boredom. They warded off the boredom with this. There's a great contradiction for some, some people in the Derry's history. 
Derry is the big icon of Unionist history, the walled city, the siege and all that. Yet, from the mid-19th century, there was a, a, a preponderance of Catholics, and there was two or three gerrymanders to ensure that the Unionist Protestants, you can lump them together, uh, really uh, got into power. So there's that whole problem, and Derry represents that kind of uh, mix where... Uh, you have this icon of, of Unionist history, and it's got this Catholic population. Now, that's changing over the years, you know, and it's, it's, it's now uh, there's proper elections that hadn't been for, for generations. But that's all to do with how much work came to Derry and all that sort of thing. You know? I can remember going to Mass at Christmas time, and... Uh, there was a, an excellent choir singing at the Mass. Now, they were behind the congregation singing towards their backs. But after the, the Mass was over, they had, all, they had a distinct uniform, and they came down to the body of the church. And I couldn't get over the fact that there was four of them that were not Catholics at all. Uh, they were Protestants. And to me... I was delighted to see it because I wasn't expecting to see it. But it didn't matter. They were there. And the guy, the main pianist who was there too as well, was also a Protestant. It was no problem to them. So, no, there was... Music seemed to cross a lot of barriers and a lot of divisions and a lot of lines. And it didn't matter to people. If you're a musician, you're somehow... You had your own political beliefs, of course, but it doesn't let you interfere with coming together to produce music. And that's what's so unique about this city. You are not listening to Never Records Radio. That was Lawrence Muir and Mickey McGinnis former employees of the BSR Turntable Factory, recorded live at Never Records Dairy in 2011. I'm so lucky to have captured this part of Dairy's rich history. I mean, how perfect is this interview for Never Records? These guys cover everything from rock and roll to church choir, from jazz to politics, and above all, the power of music to transcend division. This is a key recording from the Dairy Sessions. Someone should use the BSR as a backdrop for a movie or a television series. I'd watch it. Let me describe this next recording to you. Keeping with the theme of the BSR, the internationally renowned sculptor Lockie Morris created a massive sculpture called the Circular to commemorate the BSR factory at a roundabout in Craigan, a large housing estate in Derry. And I cut a record for Lockie at Never Records in 2011. For his session, Lockie enlisted the help of his friend John O'Neill, and they formed a band specifically for Never Records called The Ravels. If you didn't recognize the name at first, John O'Neill just happens to be the legendary guitarist from The Undertones, who wrote perhaps one of the greatest punk songs of all times, Teenage Kicks. I was so excited to work with Lockie and John's band that I worked extra hard to get him a good mix. I think I did like three or four, and I love how it came out. Here are the Ravels with their recording Feels Like Rain, recorded live at Never Records Dairy in 2011. 
You are not listening to Never Records Radio. That was The Ravels, featuring the artists Lockie Morris and guitarist John O'Neill, recorded live at Never Records Dairy in 2011. I still can't believe I went to Derry and recorded John from the Undertones. I also got to meet John's son, who played Maracas on that track, and I can recognize that guitar sound from Undertones records. Let me describe this next recording to you. I'm going to end today's song with a short little a cappella sung by musician Declan McLaughlin. Wayla Wyla is an old schoolyard song about infanticide, popularized by the Dubliners in the late 1960s. It's a dark murder ballad, reimagined for contemporary dairy by Declan. And while it's hard to hear a children's rhyme about murder, Wayla Wyla alludes to the dark history of poverty in the North. There's a song called A Willa Willa Wyla. I learned this song off my grandmother and then added other bits on myself. There been an old woman who lived in the woods, a willya, willya, willya. There been an old woman who lived in the woods, down by the river side. She had a baby six months old, a willya, willya, willya. But the social workers would not be told, down by the river side. The story was she'd lost her man, a willya, willya, willya. If he wasn't in the bottle, he was in the can, down by the river side. She had had a pen knife long and sharp, a willya willya willya, and she cut herself just to ease her heart. Down by the river side, she stuck the knife in the baby's head, a willya willya willya. When they kicked the door and they both were dead. Down by the river side, no door to door, no police report, a willya willya willya. They don't give a fuck when it's just a purr. Down by the river side. You are not listening to Never Records Radio. That was Decky McLaughlin with a Wayla 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 reimagined for Contemporary Dairy, recorded live at Never Records in 2011. Thank you for listening to Never Records Radio. I hope everyone is enjoying the sounds of Northern Ireland. For more information, please visit neverrecords.net. This show would not be heard if it wasn't for Scott Morfitt and Eli Klott at Blue Gold Radio. They put Never Records on the airwaves with support from the UW Eau Claire Foundation. You are not listening to Never Records. <laughs>